Well, tonight I am very excited to share John 9 with you. I spent a lot of time reading about it this week. And uh, it's a, a welcome turn. There's a welcome turn in John. Because we have been waiting since John 4 and the Samaritan woman to see a true disciple. We've been waiting for all these chapters to find someone who truly believes, who perseveres in their faith like the Samaritan woman, and it's John 9. It's like a breath of fresh air after watching all the people who love Jesus at the beginning and they profess to believe in him, and yet by the end they're ready to kill him. And here it is, a story of a true faithful disciple, John. I'm so happy to share it this, this night. What's interesting, of course, is that unlike the rest of the gospel, almost exclusive to this chapter in, in John 9, is that Jesus is so rarely in this chapter. He only appears at the very beginning and the very end. But the main part of the narrative focuses on this man, this blind man. And he has an encounter with Jesus, and, and by the end of it, he's going to encounter Jesus again, and Jesus will explain himself to him. But in a lot of ways, it, it feels like he's kind of out on a limb, out on his own. Jesus is not there when he's interrogated by the synagogue leaders, by the Pharisees nor his parents, nor when he gets interrogated a second time. Jesus initiates the encounter, but, but it almost seems like he's not present, and yet this man's faith continues. And what a beautiful picture of the church today, what we live in. The time in which we've had an encounter with Jesus, for those who believe, you had an encounter with him, you believe in him, and then we're just waiting for him, right? It, it, a lot of times, most of our life is lived, and, and we feel like he, I don't know, maybe we feel like he's not really there. We feel like I'm kind of just living life on my own, and I don't know if the Lord's really paying attention, or if he's here, or what. And we're waiting that day when he's going to come back and make it all clear for us. He's going to make right all the wrongs of the world. That, that's kind of what happens in John 9. But again, just like everywhere else, there is an element of suffering, right? This man suffers legitimately. Not only before in his pitiable state of being blind, but also when he's put out of his own community. He suffers greatly, which in that day and age is about the worst thing you could suffer. Your community is all you have to support you. It's all you have to keep you alive, your friends and family, because it's not like our nation of individualism. It's not like America, the United States of America, where it is so individualistic and, and everyone can get by on their own. That's not how these people lived. But in terms of the, the literature, where we are in John 9, it follows right after John 8, which we just read last week. And remember, at the end of John 8, it says Jesus was about to be stoned, and he hid himself and went out of the temple. 
And this story follows right on that. There's no separation between John 8 and 9. There's no time, there's no, there's no evidence to tell us that time has changed, that somehow a couple days have gone by or whatever. The story just continues. And it starts like this. As he passed by, Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, and then as he passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And so his disciples asked him, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now here's what's interesting. There's a very common belief in that day and age that affliction was related to sin. Right? That his affliction, that fact that he was born blind, must be related to some evil either he himself had done, which is interesting, he'd been born blind, so that would be uh, in utero sin, if you're keeping, <laughs> keeping score of that. But that was a legitimate belief, that they could have sinned. Or, maybe his mother sinned while she was pregnant with him. right? And that sin of the parents came down to the son. That's what they're alluding to. And here in John 9, this account is really closely following John 5. If you remember John 5 with the lame man, he's an example of an unfaithful, he's the example of an unfaithful encounter with Jesus, one who responds poorly. And this is an example of a faithful encounter with Jesus. But in that story, remember, Jesus said to him that it was his sin that had caused his lameness. Jesus said that explicitly. So John 9 and John 5 balance each other. Because we know there are some sins that do cause affliction. John 5 told us that. But Jesus' response here in John 9, who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus says, it was neither this man nor his parents who sinned. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There was a purpose to his suffering. That the work of God was going to be played out in his life. And his blindness that he had been born with would be cured to show who Jesus was. To show the power and, and deity of Christ. Jesus says that's the reason. was So that this might happen. And then Jesus goes on. And this is the connection with, with chapter 8. Remember, we've heard this before. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's what he said in John 8, 12. He said, I am the light of the world. That was back in John 8. And now he's bringing it back, that theme from John 8. Remember, John 8 was the Feast of Tabernacles. They'd been doing this whole celebration, this festival in Jerusalem. And now Jesus is repeating, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world, just like he said then in the temple. So when Jesus had said this, he spit on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes, to the blind man's eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Which is translated sent. Most, uh, most commentators make a note that this is probably Jesus doing a creative act. 
right? Just like in Genesis 2, the dust of the ground is what God creates humanity out of. Jesus, too, takes a spit and makes clay out of the earth to make these new eyes for this man is how they understand it, right? That Jesus is doing a creative act to restore sight to the blind, just like God, just like God would do. It's showing who Jesus is. But it says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And of course, Jesus has talked throughout this gospel about being the sent one, right? That's what he keeps calling himself. I am the one who was sent by my father. And so he sends this man to the pool to be healed. And what's interesting about that, obviously, one is that the word means sent. That's the name of the pool. But remember in the Feast of Tabernacles, I talked about the water drawing ritual, that they would draw water and pour it out, and that was representative of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, The water that was used in that ritual was drawn from the pool of Siloam. That's another connection with chapter 8. The water of the water ritual is drawn from the pool of Siloam. So again, Jesus is saying, me, the sent one, I give true healing water. Just like he said in John 7, right? He had said that anyone who is thirsty come to me and you can drink freely. Jesus is saying again, the Feast of Tabernacles, that water drawing, that is meaningless apart from me. I'm the one who gives true healing water. And so he sends the man, he washes in the pool. It says, so the man went away and washed, and he came back seeing. Okay? He does not know where Jesus is. He just came back, he washed, and he can see. It's a miracle, right? It's a sign. He can see again. He was blind. He's never seen anything. He was born blind. He's never been able to see the sights of the world. And he's taking in the sights of the temple and of Jerusalem as he walks around for the first time in his life. And of course, people see him who know him. His neighbors and those who had previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He's just a guy who kind of resembles him. He kept saying, no, I am the one. It's me. So they were saying to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So they brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. And if you remember, that's probably not positive. If by now, in nine chapters into John, if you haven't realized, the Pharisees tend to be negative figures in this gospel. Right? In in the gospel of John, Pharisees are the ones who are in power standing against Jesus. So we already have an inkling that something's not going right if they're bringing him to the Pharisees. So they brought the man who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. 
Here we go again. Another Sabbath controversy because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. We now know that it was a Sabbath when Jesus healed this man. And of course that has been the thing that has irked the Pharisees all along. It's what made them so sure and certain that Jesus was not from God. He was a lawbreaker is what they claimed about him. So the Pharisees also were asking the man how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. And therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They're torn. They're not sure what to make of Jesus. The Pharisees are torn on whether he is from God or isn't from God. They can't make up their mind because the things he does are so incredible. And yet, their interpretation of the Bible says, no, he's a Sabbath breaker. He's got to be a sinner. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, he is a prophet. Notice how the man is progressing. What did he say originally? Who healed you? A man called Jesus. That's all he said. Now in verse 17 he says he is a prophet. Which is true. It's not adequate. There's more to it than that. But it is true that Jesus is a prophet. The man's faith is developing Right? Remember all the other instances we've seen of belief. So often they're early believers and it says they profess to believe, but they quickly turn on him. This man's faith is growing. A man called Jesus. Now he believes he's a prophet. So when he said he was a prophet, it obviously hit the Pharisees wrong because it says the Jews then did not believe that he had been born blind. So they had to call his parents. Like, this kid's a liar. Let's get the parents in here. What's interesting is, um, as we're going to read, we don't know how old this man was. We do know that his parents were still alive. So he's relatively young, probably. The average life expectancy was not long in those days compared to what it is now, at least in our country. So the fact that his parents are still alive and that his father can come and speak to them shows that he's probably a younger man. In fact, they even allude to him being of age. Being of age in the Jewish culture is 13. Right? The bar mitzvah, remember? That's when you become a man. So it's possible he's around that age. Maybe he's older. But whatever the case, he's not very old. He's a relatively young man. And so they call his parents in to get the scoop. Well, what's the story about this this kid of yours? They question the parents, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And here's the thing. It's sad. They're reticent to speak and stand up for their son. They, by this point, clearly know their son's testimony. 
He's told the neighbors. He's told the Pharisees. I'm sure he's told his parents. And we find out why. Why are they so reticent to defend their son in his honor? Why are they so reticent to defend Jesus, the man who healed their son? His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They're afraid to lose their community. And you can't help but feel compassion for them. Because like I said earlier, their community is everything to them. It's all they have. It's the relationships through which they probably often find work and ways to make money and ways to survive. It's those they turn to when they need help. To lose their community, to be stranded is in some ways a death sentence in this culture, right? And so it says that the Pharisees had already agreed to put anyone who thought Jesus was the Christ out of the synagogue to excommunicate them from their community so that they would have no relationships, no one to rely on, no one to call. It was a power play, a way to keep people in line, believing the right things, making sure you believe exactly what the Pharisees want you to. Because if you don't, we'll put you out. And yet, yet at the same time, you cannot, despite feeling compassion for them, ignore their cowardice either. Their cowardice to not defend their son. To not defend the man who had healed their son. As a parent, how much you love your children. Can you imagine if I just think about Eli, for example. If someone came and healed his cerebral palsy. And then someone called me to testify to that person's character. The kind of man they were. The kind of person they were. Man. It would be an act of cowardice. To not defend them. To not be thankful and grateful for what they'd done for me and my family. For my kids. And the shock is, of course, that these parents are cowardly, and yet their son is so brave. He stands on principle. He knows what this man has done for him. He knows what this Jesus he's heard of has done for him. And he's willing to risk it all, as we're going to see. So a second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God we know that this man is a sinner. Listen to how the Pharisees talk, too. Listen to the arrogance with which they talk. Listen to the way they speak. We know. They have a predetermined conclusion about who Jesus is. They're not willing to weigh the evidence. They're not willing to look at the act of the healing. They're not willing to consider whether they are wrong. They start with their conclusion. They're not examining and then coming to a conclusion. They have a conclusion. And that conclusion is 
He's a sinner. So the blind, the formerly blind man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's had an experience of Jesus. Remember, I named this series in the first week, and it's been a while since we've talked about seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. It's about an experience with Jesus. This man doesn't have all the training. He doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't know the Bible like the Pharisees. And yet he's had an experience with Jesus that is fundamental for him, that is life-changing for him. It is the experience of Jesus that allows him to know what kind of man Jesus is. It's not like the Pharisees who already thought they understood who Jesus was. This man comes saying, I know nothing. I don't know anything about this man, really. I, I, I guess, maybe you're right, maybe he's a sinner, but I do know one thing. I used to be blind, and he healed me. See the difference between his humility and the arrogance of the Pharisees. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't even know where he's from. Interesting how often they've claimed to know where he's from. And now here in this moment, when it serves their purposes, we don't know where he came from. The man answered, Well, here is an amazing thing. That you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. They put him out. It's interesting that these Pharisees, these great religious scholars, come to the opposite conclusion of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that we're left with two narratives about the formerly blind man? Remember, the disciples said the same thing about him at the beginning. Was he a sinner or were his parents sinners? Jesus' interpretation, no, neither. And so the works of God could be done in his life. What did the Pharisees say? You were steeped in sin at your birth. What's their point? They remember that he was blind. They remember that he used to be blind. And it's funny, they ignore the condition he's in before them of seeing, and they treat him just like that blind man, just like the disciples talked about him in the beginning. No, we know you were steeped in sin because you were a blind man. 
You must have been full of sin. And you dare teach us, who know so much better than you could possibly know. So they put him out, and that word put him out means they excommunicated him. They put him out of the synagogue. He lost his community. He lost everything. In fact, more than likely, he probably lost his relationship with his parents, who were still part of the community of the synagogue. Right? Because they were too cowardly to stand up for their son, for Jesus. And so he pays the price. He pays the price of standing on principle and acknowledging Jesus before the authorities. Jesus heard that they had put him out and he found him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And then the man answered, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Remember where he's been. A man called Jesus. He's a prophet. Now, the Son of Man. His faith is progressing. And I love this line. And I think it's missed. This is one way that the literal translation is sometimes nice to have. Jesus says, in response, remember, he says, Who is he that I might believe in him? Jesus' response, You have both seen him. Seen him. There's a special significance about Jesus saying, you have seen him. This is a blind man. He's now seen the Lord face to face. You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. This kind of seems at odds with John 3, right? Remember? Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world, is what that says. It seems contradictory. But actually what Jesus is saying here, there is a judgment, and, and the judgment is that Jesus is separating people. The judgment is not that he's condemning people. It's that by nature of being light, because he is the light of the world, he's separating people. That's the judgment. Because those who hate the light, who are afraid of the light, who want to live in darkness, run from him. And those who see the light, those who perceive the light, those whom the light touches, are changed by him. And Jesus says, guess what? I came for that very reason, that the blind might see. And of course, there's a big physical miracle that just happened, a physical sign that happened to prove that Jesus came so that the blind might see. But what's he really talking about? The spiritually blind. Those who have been blinded by the world, blinded because they do not have an ability to discern spiritual things. He came so that those blind might see and that those who see might become blind. This story lays out those people, doesn't it? It lays out the man who was blind and could see and it lays out the Pharisees 
who thought they could see and are blind. Last two verses. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, being Jesus, they said to Jesus, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have any sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Just like we read as we read through that passage, their arrogance, their knowledge, their claim to know everything shows how uninformed they are. It shows how blind they are. And Jesus says, because you think you know it all, your sin remains. But those who claim to know nothing, those who recognize that they are impoverished and blind, they can see. And if they had been truly blind, then they wouldn't have any sin. Jesus would shine the light and forgive them of their sin. But the fact that they thought they could, the fact that they knew they were seen, proved that they were truly blind. And this story has so much application today. It's, it's a beautiful story. And I, like I said, I'm so grateful to read it because it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement as we've slogged through the Gospel of John to see a believer. This man starts with no knowledge of Jesus. Nothing. He's simply a blind man begging to survive. That's what his life consists of. He has no one to help him, no one to take care of him. He begs at the temple to try and get money to survive and has never seen anything in his entire life. That's his life. That's his condition. And he has an encounter with Jesus. Jesus seeks him out and touches him and heals his blindness. And he goes from a man, a man called Jesus, to recognizing Jesus, this he reflects on it, and he must, he must be thinking, man, okay, if he can do this kind of thing, he must be a prophet. So he says he's a prophet. Then he goes on, and Jesus tells him afterwards, after his whole interaction and the cost he pays to be faithful and truthful about what happened between him and Jesus, he loses everything, loses his community, probably loses his family. And Jesus approaches him and gives him a revelation. No, it's the Son of Man You've got to believe in. That's me. So the man believes he's the son of man. And then, by the end, he's calling him Lord. Lord. Master. This is the example of a persevering believer. We saw all these believers throughout John who kept believing and saying they believing and they professed to believe and Jesus would say something and they wouldn't examine it. They wouldn't think over it. They wouldn't ponder it. They'd say, this is a hard teaching. And they'd walk away like John 6. Or they'd hear, I am. And they'd say, well, there's no way he is. Get the stones. We've got to kill this guy. Those were the people who believed John 8 says. And yet here finally is an example of someone who starts at a place of knowing nothing and perseveres in his belief 
till he sees Jesus as Jesus really is, Lord. That's where he ends. You can tell this is a persevering disciple, one who walks the walk of faith. And it cost him something. And that's the other thing I think we have to realize. Confession of Jesus costs something. It does. It does. It costs something to put something on the line and choose Jesus over something else. This man chooses Jesus over responding appropriately to the religious leaders. The religious leaders say, get back in line. This is not in line with, with Jewish belief. And he risks everything to say, no, it doesn't matter to me. This Jesus, he's the real deal. I know, because I was blind and now I see. And so they, they take everything. And he has to pay that price. He has to pay that price. The man chooses Jesus. We have to do the same thing. When, when the choice comes, when there isn't a choice between Jesus and government, or Jesus and, and our family, or Jesus and uh, death, we're called to make the choice. You can be like his parents, and you can walk away and say, I'm just, I care about myself in this instance. I, I just need to protect me and mine. Just go along with it just play the game or you can be like the man who was born blind and now can see who, who risked everything on following Jesus the beautiful thing the beautiful thing about Jesus and this man did not even know this yet but we do and we're going to celebrate it tonight because we're going to take communion, is that Jesus made a new community for us to be part of. This man lost a community. And in that day and age, like I said, it was everything to someone. But Jesus had made a new one. And it hadn't been made yet because Jesus hadn't been crucified and he hadn't poured out his spirit but we know now, 2,000 years later, that the church is that community. And that it is integral to everything God planned. It is not an addendum. It is not something we just get to say, I'd rather just be at home. I'd rather just study the Bible on my own and be a good Christian and believe the right things and I can just do that on my own. It's not a choice. God does not give us the choice. And I know, because I, want, I wanted to make that choice in my life. I wanted to say, screw the church. I don't want anything to do with it. It does too much evil. I've experienced it in my own life. I've been hurt. I've been broken by the church. There is no other plan. That's the conclusion I came to. It is a broken, broken institution, of course, because it's filled with people. It's filled with people, and anything filled with people is broken. 
and can be misguided and can hurt people and can make the wrong choice. And all too often the church is like the parents where it's just like, just go along with it. Go along with the world and just smooth things over for us. But the church is the answer God provided. The church is the only answer. It's the only community that you can be assured should stand behind you. Because that's what God intended. And all too often, particularly in the U.S., community is cheap and meaningless to us. It's cheap and meaningless. Believers all around the world, outside of the U.S., particularly outside of first world, places like Syria, places like China, they're ready to die each week to meet up. Not because of the virus. They're ready to die because they know their government will kill them. Well before the virus, they were meeting knowing they could die. But they believed the community was valuable enough and important enough to die for. And we have lost our way in many ways because of our comfort. Because of our comfort here in this country, we've lost our way in accepting how valuable community is. And we think it's something we can just throw on the trash heap when it doesn't suit us anymore. And I've walked that road. I've walked that road. And it's a lonely road. And God called me back to the church. I was heading towards being a professor. I wanted nothing to do with church. I was like, I love people, but I hate the church. <laughs> I love people. I always love people. But man, I hate the church. God showed me a different way. He called me back to it because this is his plan. The believers in community together. That's all he has to offer. I, I hate to tell you this. If, if you, you know, hearing this tonight or maybe down the road if you listen to this podcast or whatever, there's no plan B. There's no other option. You can't just, you know, wait around hoping Jesus is going to provide something else. This is it. This is it. And we have to recognize the blessing and importance of community in the church. Because it is vital. It is not uh, an addendum. It is not an, an extra thing to tack on. It is uh, necessary. It is vital. It is the lifeblood of what Jesus is doing on the earth. Is building his community. His spirit is uniting people as one body. right? Like the Bible says, the New Testament says. He's building them as a temple in which the Spirit of God would dwell. That's the plan. And this man knows what it costs to lose community. I know what it costs to lose community. It's necessary. It's vital. It's life-giving. You've got to be a part of it. 
we've got to honor it and respect it and treat it as important. And that's something that the church, particularly in the United States, is not has not done well. And we need to be better at it. And I guess the last thing I would say about this man that really stuck out to me is just his immense humility. I love listening to his humble voice next to the arrogance of the Pharisees. Man, would we all have that kind of faith? To not claim to understand perfectly. To not claim to understand everything rightly. But man, that we would seek Jesus so that we could understand. That we could say, I don't know. I don't know everything there is to know. But Jesus, he's still teaching me. He's still teaching me what I need to hear. I pray we'd all have that kind of faith. The faith that wants to learn, to grow, to be transformed by his, by his Spirit into the likeness of Jesus, that we would look like Jesus, think like Him, act like Him, love people like Him, love God like Him. And I pray that all of our eyes would be opened in ever greater ways by the light the light that is Jesus. He is still the light of the world. He may not be present physically here anymore, but he is still the light that we all need to see. Let me bless you. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person in this room, each person who's listening to this tonight. Lord, I do pray that if their eyes are unopened, Lord, would you shine. Would you let them see you in all your splendor and beauty, in all your love and compassion, in all the ways you are so much beyond what we normally experience with humans. <laughs> so many people, so many churches can disappoint, and yet you are still the Lord. And so I pray you would reveal yourself to each person May your light open their eyes so that they can see you clearly. Lord, for those walking in darkness, would you shine your light into their life and into their presence. For those who know you, may we in humility admit our weaknesses, our flaws, our inabilities, our lack of knowledge because we know you are in endless depth to explore. Help us to continue not to give up or become weary, but to continue to explore who you are. Be faithful to do that. And I pray that each person would be blessed with your presence this week, that they'd experience the light of Jesus. That they would know who you are and that they too if they're starting just at the place where you're a man called Jesus, would you lead them down that path so that one day they might say you are Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.